Welcome to Austin Chapel. Um, uh, as you guys, most of you know, uh, we are temporarily meeting at uh, our house. Uh, this isn't a long-term solution or a long-term plan, but right now this is where we're at and what we're doing. And uh, I'm loving it. I'm actually kind of enjoying it. I'm enjoying specifically not have to set up and tear down. Like I got to clean my house, but we pretty much have to do that anyways. So, <laughs> so it's not that bad, right? Uh, so glad that you guys are here. We're going to be continuing in our series through the Gospel of John. I am particularly excited about this text and this sermon. And I say that often. And it's because every week I'm pretty excited about whatever I'm going to be teaching about. But this week I feel extra joyful about the sermon. Okay, so that's what we're talking about today. Joy. Specifically joy that is found in Jesus, but is birthed through sorrow. So we're talking about sorrow. We're talking about joy. We're talking about how they relate. And specifically, we're going to learn a lot about prayer. And you're thinking, okay, sorrow, joy, prayer, that seems like a lot. We're going to cover it all. It's actually not even that long of a passage. And Jesus tells us a lot of cool things here. So it's going to be great. Um, our text is uh, John 16, 16 is where we're going to start. So as many of you know, I'm going to Nepal in a few weeks, right? And uh, Tyler Smith is going to. And Nepal is the home of uh, eight of the ten tallest mountains in the world, the tallest being Everest. So they got all those there. And uh, I thought it fitting to just read a little bit on Everest. And I found this one story of this, one of the early Everest climbers. Um, he had done two failed trips, and they interviewed him before his third trip when he was going to um, hike Everest, and this was back in the 20s. And uh, they were asking him, like, what is the purpose of doing this hike? And I'm paraphrasing this a little bit because uh, I didn't want to read the entire article to you guys. But basically he said, I know that there is no real use to doing it. I know that there's no gold at the top. I know that there's no real scientific or even for aviation, there's no real reason to get to the top. But if you don't understand the human need to conquer the tallest mountain, I can't explain it to you. <laughs> right? He ended up dying on that mountain uh, and, not, and 2,000 feet short of the, the top. But in that interview, he also said, hiking that mountain is sheer joy and nothing else. And I was like, wow, that's uh, okay. So he died for this goal that he was working towards and the, the pain of, of the cold and the, the brutal hiking, uh, the physical toll that it would take on you to do that climb uh, was worth it. In fact, he felt that it was sheer joy, joy working towards that goal. And we're going to see that joy that is birthed out of sorrow, out of trials, is solid and secure joy in this text. Jesus is going to teach us that. And it's something that we really need to learn to grasp as believers, that sorrow can bring about joy, and it's a powerful type of joy. So we're going to break down this entire text. We're going to learn a number of things about sorrow and joy and prayer. So verse 16, let's start there. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father? So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. I love this. The disciples are really confused by what Jesus is saying here. 
They're like, is Jesus talking about some sort of game of peekaboo, uh, of hide and seek? Are we all about to get flashlights and go play flashlight tag? They don't know what Jesus is talking about here. What does he mean? He's going to go away for a little while. He's going to, we won't see him, and then we'll see him again for a little bit. They're confused. They're like, what, what are you talking about? Uh, so if you ever, just heads up, if you're ever reading scripture, and you're like, what, is, what are they talking about here? Right? And you're confused? Just know that you're not alone. Like, even the disciples, sometimes when Jesus was talking, were like, what is he talking about? Right? Sometimes it takes a little more time, a little, learning a little more background, or, or, or even having the Holy Spirit reveal things to you for you to understand the text. So if you're ever reading scripture going, I don't know what this is saying, you're not alone. The disciples didn't know either. Okay? Uh, but Jesus is telling them here that he is going to go to the Father. Ultimately, he is speaking of his death and then his resurrection. Um, and the disciples don't understand what's going on. They're, they're confused. Verse 19, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will see me and a little while and you, uh, and you will not see me in a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. Oh, great. But the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. Okay, so first, right off the bat, Jesus sees that they are confused. He sees that they have questions, and Jesus cares. Jesus cares, and so seeing that they wanted to ask questions but weren't, maybe they were a little scared too, Jesus, in a loving manner, addresses it and speaks more clarity to them. Um, I think that's amazing. Jesus cares about your confusion. If you feel confused or you feel uncertain or you're anxious, Jesus cares, and he wants to be there with you. Isn't that good news? He's concerned about this. So he begins to explain that um, there's going to be this moment for the disciples where they're going to lament and they're going to weep. They're going to have a lot of sorrow. Now, Jesus also cares about our sadness. He cares about our pain. He cares about our suffering, and he wants to meet us there as well. But what Jesus is going to say to them here is that their sorrow will be turned into joy. That's really key. Because he's not saying that their sorrow will be taken away or removed. He's saying he's going to transform their sorrow into joy. And then Jesus does something really dangerous, as any guy knows. He compares something to childbirth. <laughs> which you are not supposed to do, right? Somebody should have told Jesus, you're not supposed to do that. Like, as anybody, as any husband knows, right, you don't compare anything to childbirth. That's a huge no-no, right? Uh, you're going to get in trouble. And maybe it's because it was just the disciples. None of the wives were there. None of the women were there. Because I feel like if he had said this and the women, they would hold on a second, Jesus. I know you're God, but you're, you're also a man. And you don't know. <laughs> But what he's saying is that the same baby that is causing pain when her hour comes, or for many women, hours come, right? Unfortunately, it's a long process. Uh, the same baby that causes 
causes all the pain is the same baby that causes all the joy afterward. It's the transformation from sorrow to joy. So the same thing that can cause a lot of pain and sorrow is the same thing that can cause a lot of joy. Jesus is saying he's going to transform their sorrow into joy. Now, ultimately, he's talking here about his death, burial, and resurrection. So his death, what a moment of sorrow. What a moment to weep, to to lament. The Savior of the world, God in flesh, the perfect man, on a cross for sins he did not commit. That is a reason to be sorrowful. I don't think there's ever been a tragedy of the same significance. But it's in the same tragedy of his death, the perfect man dying for sin that he didn't commit, that through the resurrection, we all have new life. So his sorrow, the disciples' sorrow, was turned into joy in the resurrection. What we're learning here is that joy that is birthed out of sorrow is the most powerful kind. Jesus says this in verse 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. The sorrow that is turned into joy is a secure joy, locked away in the vault of tried and tested. It is a joy that cannot be taken from them. It is a joy that cannot be robbed. I want that. But is birthed from sorrow. And I think we want pure and true joy in our lives without the sorrow that births it. Think about that. The lessons you learn in tragedy, in trials, in suffering, in persecution, bring about rewards of joy, true and pure joy that cannot be robbed. Joy that comes easily is a temporary joy. That's why in the Bible we are never told to pursue comfort. We are never told to pursue things the easy way. In fact, we are always promised that things are going to be difficult for us. We are always promised that there will be trials, and there will be suffering, and there will be persecution. Jesus never promises happiness and comfort, but he promises that he will take our trials, our suffering, our pain, and he will turn it into pure joy, a joy that no one can take from you. No one can take it from you. I think that's amazing. A secure joy. Verse 23. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So this first bit here, why does he say, in that day you will ask nothing of me? And then he's talking about asking for stuff. 
Is he contradicting himself? No. He's saying right now, as he's present with them in his physical form, they can walk up to him and ask him for stuff. And he's saying, in that day, you won't be able to walk up to me and ask me for stuff because I'm going to be with the Father. But what you will do is you will pray to the Father in my name, and whatever you pray in my name, the Father will give to you. Then he says, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So I said we're talking about sorrow and joy and joy and prayer. They're all related here. Now, what does it mean that Jesus is saying, whatever you ask? Whatever you ask. That's pretty general, right? It means that nothing too small or too big. We can go to him with whatever. I was thinking about the different platforms of communication. So you have text message or maybe Facebook Messenger, right? So you can text somebody, hey. Like, has anybody ever just texted you just hey? Like, there's no subject, right? There's no verb. Just, hey. And you're like, hey? <laughs> right? Like, what's up? <laughs> you're like, right? Like, it's just a meaningless conversation. Like, they're, they're just bored. And they're assuming you're also bored and that you want to talk, right? No, I'm sure it's just being nice friends, but I'm just, I'm a cynic. So, <laughs> right? So it's just, hey, how's it going? Good, uh, good, good seeing you the other day, you know, whatever. No real point to the conversation. That's what text messaging and Facebook Messenger are for, right? What you don't want to see in a text message is like 30 pages. You ever have those text <laughs> messages fights? Right? Let me just tell you right now, if you're the type of person who sends people 30 pages through text message, they're not appreciative of it. <laughs> and they're probably coming in out of order, and it becomes a puzzle of like putting things together. And not only are you, you writing them a book, it's a book in the form of a puzzle, and now you've given them this giant chore. Okay? Text message is not that. Send them an email. That, see? So we have another platform for communication. Email is far better for large amounts of content, right? But even sometimes with emails, you have an attachment and then it says all oh, your attachments too big you ever have that happen maybe you guys don't use e uh, email as much as I do you guys are young okay <laughs> so, but sometimes you send an email and they're like hey that attachment is just way too big we're not gonna send that you're gonna have to send that through Google Drive okay great now I gotta get on another platform so Google Drive is a place where we share large amounts of content and you can collaborate and work on things right and then we have like the old-fashioned mail Right? Where you can send letters and they can, st if you go away for one week, they stuff it full of junk mail. Right? There's no man, like, has, like, they don't stop giving it to you, they just fill your mailbox. Or you've got Amazon, right? You can order a refrigerator and it will show up on your doorstep via drone an hour later. <laughs> right? So there's all these ways of sending information, sending content, uh, of communication. Um, and I think that sometimes we assume prayers, some of these, but not all of them, right? Is prayer just a text message? Hey, how's it going? Or is prayer a delivery system by drones, right? <laughs> Which is going to happen. Amazon's saying they're going to do it. I know I'm talking about the future here. But, or is it email? Is there ever a time where God's like, that attachment is too large? I'm not going to answer that prayer. No. Prayer is appropriate for all forms of these communications, right? So prayer is appropriate. Whatever. Like, you can just talk to God because you're bored, 
You can also talk to God because you're needing a giant answer, right, to your, your request. You have something big you need him to do. So you need him to deliver in some major way. All of that is appropriate for prayer. Prayer is, whatever content you have, prayer is the appropriate method of communication with God. And I think that's pretty cool. So Jesus is saying, whatever you want to talk to God about, ask it in my name and he will give it to you. So this is kind of like a promise. So you think, okay, so it's Jesus' name. So when we say, in Jesus' name we pray, right? So every night I pray with Lincoln and we pray and we pray. And he, he has this thing, whether it's listening to music or when we're praying, he just repeats the last word of like every line, basically. So whatever we're praying, he just will say the last word of the line. And then at the end, I say, in Jesus' name, amen, right? So is that Jesus' name at the end, do we throw that on um, as an abracadabra to our prayer? Is that what Jesus is saying here? Like, whatever you want to ask, just say Jesus' name at the end is a magic word, and you'll get it. I don't think that's what he's saying here. I think saying the words in Jesus' name is far more serious a statement than we realize. To pray in Jesus' name is to pray in line with Jesus' will and to pray for Jesus' glory. It is not an abracadabra to your desires. It is a surrendering and professing that I believe that this is in Jesus' will and for his glory. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. He says when you pray in Jesus' name, whatever you ask will be granted. So it's a matter of learning how to pray in line with Jesus' will and for his glory. And then he says, you will receive that your joy may be full. Learning to pray in line with Jesus' will and seeing the things happen is how your joy will be full in your life. Sorrow births inrobable, untakeable joy. But pray, prayer in Jesus' name in line with his will it for his glory, and then you're seeing it answered, will also give you full and complete joy. Who's excited about that? I want to pray in Jesus' name. I want to pray in line with his will. I want to pray for his glory, believing that because I, I'm learning his will, I'm learning what most glorifies him, I'm going to see those things happen, and my joy is going to be full. I'm excited about that. So, does God sometimes not answer prayer? It's a general question. Right? Does he always say yes, no, or later? Right? What do you do when you feel like he's not answering your prayer? Or he's maybe saying no? Are you to be patient? Are you to look inward and see if what you're praying is in, the, in line with Jesus' will or not? The Bible gives us, I think probably more, but I, but I found one list of reasons why your prayers are not answered from Scripture. Psalms 60, the first one is Psalms 66, 18. It says, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Unconfessed sin to God hinders your prayers. This is pretty crazy, you guys, to think about this. What he is not saying here 
is that only perfect people get their prayers answered. He is not saying clean yourself up before you ask for things. He's not saying if you had a sinless week, then you'll be able to pray in a certain type of faith that will get you answers. He's saying before you ask for what you want, confess your sin to him. Confess your mistakes to God. And we make the mistake as Christians, knowing the you know, sovereign nature of our king, of, of our God, that he's all-knowing, we make the mistake of thinking we don't have to verbalize our sin to him. You must verbalize your sin to God. He does know. Actually, he knows more about your sin than you do because your heart is deceitful and blinds you to a lot of it. He knows the depths of your soul, the depths of your heart, far better than you do, but you still must verbalize your sin to him, showing that you are repentant and sorrowful for it. So when we go to God in prayer, I believe the best thing to do is to begin with confession. Lord, I am sorry that I did this. I am sorry that I thought that about that person. I'm sorry that I watched this or that, or I yelled at that person, or I had road rage in traffic. You need to confess your sin to the Lord. Whatever it is, you verbalize it to the Lord. Here's what's amazing. You verbalize your sin, and he now wants to listen to you and hear you and talk to you. Your sin is not a barrier for him, but he wants you to verbalize it, confess it. And what that does in you is it brings about a humble heart. If you begin your prayers with confession, your attitude towards the Lord and your request after that is going to be a lot different, isn't it? If you verbalize your sin to the Lord and then you ask for what you want, you're not going to come at it with an attitude of, I deserve this. You're not going to come to God with a, God, you didn't do this. You're not going to accuse him in the same way because you just verbalized your own filth. And you're verbalizing that you recognize that he saved you from all that. That he died for all that. You're approaching him in a much more humble way. So if you begin your prayers with confession, I believe that you're much more likely to pray in the will of Jesus. And to pray for his glory. And to pray less selfishly, which is the second reason prayer goes unanswered. According to James, selfishness is why we don't see our, our prayers answered. Uh, verse four, uh, or sorry, chapter four, verse three of James. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. Prayer is not, you know, God is not a genie in, in a bottle, right? He's not gonna give you your three wishes to make your life perfect. That's not the way it works. And in fact, he says that he won't answer your prayers when you're praying out of a selfish heart. So, unconfessed sin hinders your prayer life. Selfishness hinders your prayer life. And the third is unresolved conflict. Okay, 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel weaker vessel is talking about porcelain here. So it's like, it's not saying that women are necessarily 
weaker or lesser. It's actually saying that they're like fine china compared to the men who are like thick clay, okay? Uh, since they're, so listen to this. Understanding, okay, I'm just going to start over. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. <laughs> Jesus is saying if you are not in unity with your wife, your prayers will not be answered. Or Peter is saying, or Jesus is saying that through Peter here. So unresolved conflict, specifically here between spouses, hinders prayer. But we also know that Jesus, you know, you look at the Lord's Prayer. It says, forgive um, us our debts as we also forgive those um, who have trespassed against us, right? So each one of these are going to hinder our prayer, specifically unresolved conflict. But also, I think not just for husbands and wives, but if you have unresolved conflict for someone, Jesus has told us clearly that we are to be peacemakers and that we are to always forgive no matter what because he forgave us. So if you have an unforgiving heart or unresolved conflict that you're not willing to work on, your prayers will be hindered. So in our prayer life, we have to learn to come confessing sin. We have to learn to abandon our selfish heart. And we have to make sure that we are not leaving unresolved conflict and unforgiveness out there if we're going to enter in and see God answer our prayers. Now, I know that's not the like, soft, fluffy message that you want to hear, right? It's easier for me to say that like, there's this open door to God. Go, with him at, go to him at all times and pray your heart out. And I, I do believe that you should do that. But the Bible is also telling us that there are certain things you need to learn about prayer. And that if you're not hearing from God, maybe you need to look inward to see if you have unconfessed sin to him, selfishness, or unresolved conflict. But listen, as I also said, Jesus is concerned about your joy. Like, he's tremendously concerned about your joy. Sometimes in Christianity, we, we, we either think that the church is a bunch of, like, happy, kind of fake smile, say cheese group of people, right? And sometimes, like, I understand that. When you show up at a church and all the greeters are like got this big fake smile on and you know that they're grumpy that they had to come early, but they're putting on this big smile like, glad to see you, right? And you're walking in with issues in your life and then it's like all the songs are about joy and then like the sermon is like uplifting and real happy and you're like, I have real issues that I'm like dealing with right now and all of your fake smiles are driving me nuts. So you either in that moment feel like they're all hypocrites and they're all faking their smiles, like it's just saying cheese for Jesus. Or I must be the only one that has issues. And the problem with that is Jesus is concerned with our joy, but not a fake temp temporary joy. He wants real joy. He wants true peace. Right? So, like, we only started smiling in photographs, like, in the last, like, 30, 40 years. Before that, like, look at these old black and white pictures back from the 1800s. They never smiled. You ever see those pictures? 
And it probably, what it does is it makes history look way more depressing than it probably actually was, right? You're like, man, my grandma was depressed. (laughs) She was probably really happy, but like they just didn't put on fake smiles for the camera. Right now it's like we're always on Facebook Live or whatever. Uh, But back then it was like, I'm going to give my like stoic face for the photograph. I was wondering, I'm just wondering what they were thinking at that time, like, like this is, I'm gonna, probably the only photograph of my life, and I want to look stoic and serious, like, I was a serious person, but, okay, uh, that was just a different priority for them, now our priority is this, like, kind of, I'm always happy, that's our priority, that's how we Instagram, that's how we Facebook, we, we only talk about the best moments, we only talk about the happy moments, we only post those pictures, Jesus is not telling us in this text that we're just to put on a fake smile and get through life. He's actually telling us that he is right there with us in all of the sorrow, transforming it and redeeming it for your joy. And that in prayer, if you're praying in line with him, you're going to see amazing things happen. And you're going to be filled with joy. But it's a wrestling. It's hard work to get to true joy. It's like climbing that Mount Everest, right? Like, we could go climb Mount Bunnell, right? I climbed the tallest mountain in Austin, and no one is going to be proud of you, (laughs) right? Like, that's not something you're going to be able to brag about. Because Austin has no real mountains. Like, the fact that we call it Mount Bunnell is just a statement of how flat Texas is, okay? Because uh, that's just a hill. Um, so climbing Mount Bunnell is not comparable to climbing Everest, is it? Why? Because it's not as difficult. And I don't think when somebody gets to the top of Bunnell, they are overwhelmed with sheer joy like they are if they could get to the top of Everest. Why? Because the journey, the sorrow and the trials and the pain that was felt along the way birthed a true joy. Like if you climb the top of Mount Bunnell, like you might feel kind of happy for like 15 minutes. Like you're not going to be talking about it the next day with your friends. But if you climb Mount Everest, I guarantee every conversation for the rest of your life is going to come up. <laughs> right? Like, like if I climbed Everest... Every conversation for the rest of my life with every person I ever met, well, I would bring that up, right? Like, you would have to. <laughs> it's like if you're one of the, what is it, the 12, 11, 12 guys who got to walk on the moon? Like, you're going to talk about that in every conversation for the rest of your life, right? Because there's a certain joy that was earned. So listen, what are we seeking? Are we seeking temporary happiness and good feelings that are fleeting? Are we seeking true joy that is going to come through sometimes hardships, sometimes it's going to come through pain and tragedy, but at the end of it, we know that Jesus is working in our life and there is no amount of persecution, suffering, or pain that can rob us of the joy he is working out in our lives. Ultimately, we know that we have this to look forward to. That at the end of this life, we are going to be with him perfectly. We are going to be with him in a heavenly place 
where there is no more sorrow, there is no more pain. We have been tried and we have been tested and we are out on the other side in perfect joy with our Savior. I'm looking forward to that. I want to read this last verse just as a motivator for our lives. This is out of Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He's saying this, that he, Jesus, the one who raised from the dead, I know my daughter is so cute. I am almost distracted too, okay? All right, try to listen. <laughs> Jesus, our great shepherd, the one who earned our resurrection by the blood of his covenant, he's going to equip us, amen, Ryan, with every good, everything good that we may do his will, which is pleasing in his sight and for his glory. So our lives need to be pleasing in Christ's sight and for Jesus glory and he will equip us to live those kind of lives and if we are willing to go to him in prayer and wrestle through our selfishness and our unresolved conflict and our our sin and we're willing to weather the storms of life knowing that jesus will turn that into pure joy at the end man we have a lot to be excited about we have a lot to be joy filled about i'm excited and i want to live for jesus and for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for each person that is here. Thank you for Ryan and her wonderful growls. Uh, Lord, we thank you um, just for your word and the fact that, Lord, you don't always just pull us out of sorrow, but you always transform our sorrow into joy. You always um, take the pain and, Lord, you use it to do something good. There is no tragedy. There is no amount of suffering or persecution that you do not use and transform in the end. That is a promise that you have given us. And we don't always see it. And sometimes we're blind to it. Sometimes we don't get it. Sometimes we don't feel it. Lord, I pray that we would take it in faith. That you are working out something that in the end we will see is for the best. And Lord, I pray that we learn to trust you. Lord, I pray that we learn to pray in your name, not as a magical word we, we add to the end of our prayers, but as a way to submit to your authority, as a way to align ourselves to your will, and as a way to live for your glory. I pray our prayers become that powerful, Lord. Where we're praying things that are the will of Jesus, that are for his glory. Spirit, I pray that you would convict us of whatever sin we haven't confessed to our Heavenly Father this week. Lord, I pray as we're worshiping, we verbalize those things. And then we don't feel inadequate or unworthy to ask for what we want afterward because we know that's why you died. You died so that we would have the right as children to still, even though we sin and even though we have to verbalize it, we still have the right to ask you for what we want. We still have the right to ask you for, for things, Lord, to seek you and seek your will for our lives. So Jesus, uh, bless this time. Bless every person's heart, spirit. Move through us during this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.